Thanks for tuning in to Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by the Engler Theater. In this week's episode, we'll talk with intermedia artist and longtime KRUI DJ, Jake Jones. Then we'll check in with Jane Wilch, recycling coordinator for the city of Iowa City. Jake Jones is a graduate student in intermedia at the University of Iowa School of Art and Art History. For the past three years, they've served as production director at Care UI, as well as being a DJ, where they focused on doing remote broadcasts of local art happenings and experimental radio. You may also recognize them from their performances around town, including a recent no-touching session with Justin K. Comer and the unblessed rest of us. Jake! Thanks so much for being here. So excited to chat with you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited, Ellie. So, for this episode, I really wanted to give a big old shout out to Care UI. I've been listening to so much radio during the pandemic. I'm constantly being overwhelmed by, you know, streaming and literally infinite options. And I'm like, I just need someone to tell me what to listen to. So, you are our Care UI rep today. And my first question is, you know, what attracted you to radio? What inspired you to join Care UI? I was drawn to radio. You know, I have this background in like DIY punk culture and like playing in bands and stuff. And it was really like a friend turned me on to this documentary called Sex and Broadcasting, which is about WFMU, which is a radio station out of New Jersey. And then that started an obsession with WFMU where I was listening to this radio station like constantly and like forming parasocial relationships with their DJs and like being turned on to all this great music. And then a year of that obsession goes by and I moved here to Iowa and found out the University of Iowa has a very unique situation with their radio station in that the university doesn't hold the license for it, which is very rare. Basically, what that means is it is 100% student run. And I didn't know that when I was getting into it. I just knew like been obsessing over radio. I want to be a part of this. And this is an opportunity. And KRUI is like, it's an experimental laboratory. That's part of their mission. I feel very lucky and like very proud of KRUI as an institution. So I'm curious, you as a DJ, how do you go about planning slash curating your programs? Yeah, so I'm a little like in a unique situation where my radio show is very experimental. You know, when I first became a DJ, I did the standard like general rotation show. So I was playing um, the kind of music that the music director helps us form. So like the things that the college radio stations should be playing, right? Nowadays, I just go in and grab a stack of vinyl and just play whoever has the cutest boy on the album cover. Like that's... (laughs) That's really it. Like, so awesome. this, the station mostly collected vinyl from like early '80s to mid '90s. So there's just like this wealth of like no-name hair metal bands that you can't Google. Like, they have no presence, and but they have this vinyl. I do all kinds of dumb stuff. I just try to be as annoying as possible. I'll play <laughs> records at the wrong speeds. I build experimental instruments, so I'll bring them in and just, like, make noise for an hour. I'll work out. I'll eat popcorn. I've tried to do a lot of experimental radio, and it's cool that KRUI has let me do that. Mm -hmm. I I love your approach of kind of being a little bit of a disruptor because, you know, I'm always welcoming of people disrupting my day. I get so 
caught up in the to-dos, what I should be listening to, you know, all those thoughts, the monotony. And like, yeah, sometimes I'll turn Carrie Y on. It's just some crazy, crazy stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to sit with this for a minute. How about that? You know, I'm going to mix up. I'm going to mix up the routine and just sit with this crazy experimental song right now. Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's extremely important because if you look at like the radio landscape of the United States, it's very much like dominated by fascist media companies like iHeartRadio and NPR. It's like there's no independent radio so so much anymore. It's just like a lot of rules and most universities have sold their university stations at this point. So I guess where do you see the future for radio? Do you think there's a chance for it to continue being culturally relevant or is it just tangential to everything else? A lot of my research into radio has been into radio art. And I think there's still a lot to be unexamined in artists using radio in experimental ways and like, you know, short range FM things. Radio as an institution, I mean, is as corrupt as every other media institution. And there are some media studies people and, and people in other disciplines who would say like, oh, well, radio still exists. It's just now called podcasting mm-hmm. or now it's streaming or whatever. But deep down in my heart, I'm hoping that there's sort of a nostalgic resurgence, kind of like vinyl that I've experienced in the last year where I'm like, there is such a notable and real difference between listen to like, Ty Seagal radio on Spotify or listening to Care UI and knowing that a human is putting this on there, curating this in a certain way, you know, like I can go click, you know, Esperanza Spalding on Spotify and listen to her music. But when KCCK plays the radio song by Esperanza Spalding and I'm like, this is epic. It's a song about the radio being played on the radio by a radio DJ. Like, that's so fun. It's having that, the human behind all of it just makes all the difference. It makes it truly an art form, not another robot in our lives. Plenty of AIs. And I think, Ellie, that's exactly right. Like, radio is, like, social. I think that trust and the relationship between a DJ and like their listeners. It's like really fun. It's like, that's what attracted me to like WFMU, the station that made me fall in love with radio is it wasn't just like the music was good because a lot of the times the music wasn't good. We have a lot of control and I think giving up some of that control can be really nice. It's sort of like what I was saying. Like when I go to the back of the station, I just grab a pile of records. How else are you going to hear those? Yeah, it seems to be harder and harder to discover new artists, stumble upon new artists. And yeah, when you have to make 8 billion, however many decisions you make in a day, sometimes it's just nice when it comes to, you know, what you're about to listen to, just let someone else take the wheel. Jeez, just give yourself a break, you know? Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. We talked about Carrie White. Now let's let's go Jake Jones mode. You mentioned that you're currently interested in the intersections of sound and transgender studies. Um, and that's kind of like what you're exploring at this time. Can you talk about what you have already created or done in that arena and then maybe what you're currently working on? You know, when the pandemic happened, our relationships obviously to like 
the performer audience relationship dramatically shifted. And, you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, even as someone who is like invested in digital art began to do like sort of these live performances and like, you know, zoom, but zoom is, is there's fatigue. My work took a turn away from like sort of exclusively sound studies into like, well, I don't have an audience that I'm interested in working with right now. So I really turned into myself and coming into my own gender identity and in my own work. So right now, as like an experimental instrument builder, I'm really interested in how an instrument can be a body and how a body can be an instrument. I mean, if you grab a guitar, where are you grabbing it? You're grabbing it by the neck, head, or body. I I mean, that's just like a clear, silly language example, right, of this idea. But like we have these relationships, and so I'm interested in complicating that through like transgender identity. And like, I'm not going to say anything has been really nice in the past year because it's been horrible and I hate it. And I hate having these like silver lining conversations because I'm like, no, I want to talk about how much we've been failed. But if I was going to say silver lining, it's like, well, you know, it's hard to distract myself from like transitioning and like my own gender identity when I'm like by myself all the time trying to make art. And I don't have to sell to anyone here listening. I assume that art can be like a healing technology that art can be something that like can be revolutionary. And instead of using it as I had before, as this thing where I'm communicating with audiences, I was instead trying to communicate with myself and and try to understand myself deeper. (laughs) So for example, there's like this whole idea of like the transgender tipping point of, and I really have just like a very rudimentary understanding of this right now, because this is like, very fresh but it's this idea of like as visibility of trans people increase so does violence against trans people there's this belief that the inverse would happen like as uh representation increases then people's knowledge increases about those people and understanding and acceptance is sure to follow etc but that's just not what's happening there's just a lot of violence against trans people and the, the idea of the transgender tipping point is something that's disputed, but I won't get into that. But what I will say is like how I'm thinking about that is I'm creating a series of masks that essentially get formed by you impress them on your face. But the idea is that you're screaming into it as you are creating the sculpture that's being impressed. You have created the instrument, right? So you have this tinfoil mask or whatever. Then I amplify it by putting a pickup or a micro or like a contact microphone on it. And now you play that instrument by screaming into it in the same way it was created. So it gets changed every time you play it. So I'm interested in like building instruments that transform as you play them, that have this like conversation with creation, like its creation is built into the object, like how you would play it. I'm, I'm just really interested in complicating the words like instrument and like body and object. I'm like, oh, can I do it with mud next? Can I do it with like clay? Like I'm trying to figure out what, how to expand like materials. But my MFA show was last month and I was lucky to have local musicians, Gabby Vanek, Justin Comer and Will Yeager all sort of perform these instruments with me. It was extremely fun. Yeah, it sounds like you have been attacking a lot of abstract ideas a lot of very personal ideas and that idea of being a performer without an audience really for so long like 
That's intense. It hasn't been fun. I know I don't need to tell you, and I know I don't need to tell a lot of people that, but it's like, it sucks. I can't wait to be able to prank people again, because that was my favorite thing with performance art, was, you know, this idea of the prank is like, can I draw you all in into thinking something, and then something else happens, you know, like, it's Mm. magic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we can get back into those arenas sooner rather than later. Yeah. Again. I'm vaxxed. <laughs> I'm vaxxed. We, vaxxed we're baby. vaxxed. Wow. This is the vaxxed episode. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Well, it it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I promise we literally could go on for hours. I know we could, but we can't. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, I thank you again. It's been fun and we're all going to be looking out for your new instruments, your new masterpieces. You're always doing interesting things. So appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Till next time. back will be in conversation with Jane Wilch, recycling coordinator for the city of Iowa City. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Hey, thanks for listening to Best Show Ever, sponsored in part by Friends of the Ingwert. Are you a student? Did you know that for just $10 a month, you can join student Friends of the Ingwert and get free access to the Ingwert Theater's entire digital season? For just $10, your membership will grant you the ability to buy tickets before they go on sale to the general public, complimentary access to Witching Hour and Mission Creek Festival, and stages musical performances, plus free access to screen time and storytellers, programs of wavelength, deeper learning through the arts. Plus, we'll send you a free cool t-shirt. So, if you are a high school, trade school, college, or graduate school student, you can become a member and take advantage of these amazing perks. Plus, you'll be supporting the Ingert Theater to help us in our mission to inspire and activate positive community growth through the arts. Join Friends of the Ingert by visiting ingert.org friends. Jane Wilch is the recycling coordinator for the city of Iowa City. Much of her work centers around communicating best practices for recycling and waste management here in town. Her passion for environmentalism extends beyond just the workplace and is reflected in many other aspects of her life, including her artistic endeavors. Jane, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ellie. I'm excited to be here. I know nothing about what being a recycling coordinator entails. I have no idea what the people at the recycling center do. I'm I'm hoping that maybe you can break that down a little bit for me. Just give me some of your day-to-day, you know, job description. What 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 do you do? So I am part of a very wonderful team of people at the city of Iowa City that maintains our existing recycling and waste reduction programs. We've got a lot of different types of programs we deal with. If we think of all the different types of materials that we have in our lives, that very much translates to needing some way to dispose of those materials. So lots of maintenance 
there. Uh, also, new opportunities for recycling is always something that we're looking into. So trying to identify uh, what other types of materials could we be handling in a more sustainable way and developing those new programs. One example with that is batteries just recently. So in the last year, we've been able to increase some drop-off locations for batteries and also now accept alkaline batteries, which is really exciting. Another big part of what I do specifically is daily communications with the public. So that could be emails, phone calls, meetings, presentations, lots of different platforms there. And then also continuous development of outreach and education for our programs. Awesome. Uh, What are some of the things that you wish people knew more about when it came to recycling? I think one of the big things is there tends to be a perception that recycling is an automatic when you live in a community. And uh, it's much more, I guess, fluid and uh, ever-changing than it being just a permanent program. You know, it's very much based on markets and what sorts of companies and opportunities are available in a community to make a program exist and be successful. So I, I would say that's one really big thing. Um, so how does that play out in Iowa City specifically? What do we, what infrastructure do we have here that enables us to have the kind of recycling program we have? Let's, I guess, zoom into our curbside collection program, for example. So at curbside, if you are a curbside customer, you can place cardboard, paper, plastic bottles and containers, and then metal cans and foil in your cart, as well as waxy cartons. So those are kind of the big categories that you can stick in your curbside cart. Once that truck comes by and empties that cart, it gets compacted in that recycling truck. It gets sent to where we bale that material. So it basically gets packed into these tight little cubes. And then it is sent over to the Quad Cities. So there's a sorting facility over in Davenport, Iowa, the Waste Commission of Scott County. And that is where all of this material runs down conveyor belts and gets sorted into those different categories. So metal with metal, plastic with plastic, etc. And from there, that is actually when they send it out to different recyclers. So for example, the plastic bales will go to plastic mills, the cardboard uh, and paper will go to to paper mills and cardboard box making companies. It really depends locally on what programs are available. That's our system in Iowa City. You go, you know, over to Des Moines, just a few hours down the road, it's going to be a completely different system based off of what uh, companies they have locally, what sorting facilities, what transporters they have, et cetera. So it just really is a a local industry uh, based on, you know, what a community has. Mm, I think that recycling is just one of those one of those things where you can just be almost brainless about it. Like just you, you don't even conceive of all the behind the scenes operations that are actually go into making it something that's lucrative. You know, we just rinse out the cans and throw them in the bucket, you know, put it on the curb. It's that easy. But there's so much going on behind the scenes, which is really interesting. And I guess, so what inspired you to, I don't know, get involved with recycling, become a recycling coordinator? How I got into this. So I went to the University of Iowa. I studied environmental science. And while I was there, I ended up working for a few years as the then recycling coordinator's intern. And I became really fascinated with waste from working uh, side by side with Jen Jordan, who was the recycling coordinator at the time. And once that internship was up, I graduated, I moved out to Colorado for a few years and 
I've worked on climate action outreach in Aspen. And I was out there working and heard that the recycling coordinator job had opened up in Iowa City, really wanted to get back into the waste world. And so I applied for this job. I think all of us have experienced in the last year a little bit of what it's like to just be barraged by bad news constantly. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is something that is experienced always (laughs) by people who are working in environmental sciences fields. Is that true to your experience? Uh, My honest answer is yes, it's not easy. Uh, Climate change and waste issues are certainly heavy topics. And how we get through the day-to-day with that, I would say, first of all, shout out to our Iowa City community because we have a very supportive community of the types of programs and initiatives that advocate for that environmental protection, which is huge. Uh, That's huge for, you know, there to be emphasis on such programs and dedication of resources in such programs, which which is very important. And then I'd say in terms of, you know, it being serious, heavy topics, what we usually try to do, especially from an outreach perspective, which also helps us who are actually doing the work in this field, I think it is very important for everybody to do their best at understanding the facts and the issues. And I I get it. They're heavy. They're serious. But I think it's important to understand what the facts are. That's important. And then you immediately want to transition that knowledge into action and solutions. If we let the facts and the reality weigh on us too much, yes, it can be a heavy topic. But once you start to focus on those actions and solutions you really do start to see all sorts of small victories and signs of hope, even with such a big issue as climate change. And then really, that's what you focus on. You keep going, you keep working on those solutions. Mm. I'm interested to hear more about your best show ever, because it seems very specific to who you are as a person, your interests, everything that we've talked about. We'll talk about this, but it, it plays an important role to this larger conversation of combating climate change, what art means in that whole conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and explain a little bit about what it was like. Set the scene. Where are you? What are you seeing? All the good stuff. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, you're probably going to hear me get really excited now because I yes. I just love the intersection of art and environment. I think it's a really cool space, and this is a, this is just a perfect example of that. So, the performance or or show or art installation I'm talking about today is uh, Plasticity: Our Changing Oceans, and this is by artist JD Whitman. And JD was actually a student at the University of Iowa Art and Art History School of Art and Art History. Getting her MFA. And uh, she had this as an art installation over at the Visual Arts Building. And I got tied into this because she had organized a day where a large group of elementary school kids came in and engaged with the installation and also had an environmental education piece, which was uh, several presenters that were brought in, including myself. So that's how I became aware of this exhibition. JD's mission with this installation was to especially bring awareness to the increasing plastic pollution crisis happening in our oceans. And as you walked in, so if you think of you know, a general art gallery space. Uh, This looked nothing like a typical (laughs) art gallery space. So you walk Mm -hmm. in and you immediately are entering this inflatable plastic tunnel. And uh, as you walk through it and as an active participant, so that is one really cool thing about this too, you're not 
a seated audience member. You are literally interacting and engaging in this. So you're walking through this web of inflatable plastic tunnels. And then on the plastic walls of the tunnels, there were animations of ocean life. So imagine fish and coral, et cetera, you know, all sorts of different sea life projected on the plastic material. And uh, so you almost sort of felt like you were walking through an aquarium, which was really cool. And, uh, you know, she used all 100% recycled plastic to build this inflatable. So, you know, literally having integrity built into the art, which was so cool. And the animations themselves, she created them uh, from a few different sources. So one source was she took photos uh, of these glass models of marine species. And uh, then she, you know, projected them on the walls. There was also some documentation from underwater as well. So she had a mix of different sources for those animations. But uh, very cool, very impactful, and also to be actually interacting, engaging with it as well. Mm, Yeah. Why do you think it had a lasting impact? Obviously, it was very cool. It was interactive, you know, made out of recycled materials. But, you know, what, what touched you about it or, or what stayed with you post the event? Uh, you know, I think part of the reason it was especially impactful when I, you know, encountered this installation was related to what was happening in the world at the time. And this installation was early 2018. Around that time, there was a lot of very concerning press on recycling and not just locally, you know, we're talking across the United States, really across the world that was challenging the integrity of recycling programs everywhere. And it was a difficult time with some of those changing and disappearing recycling markets. And uh, I think this art installation felt very timely. Uh, And also as an active participant experiencing it, it offered almost a sense of empathy to me because of how this global situation was relevant to the work I was doing every day as the recycling coordinator. And I think JD just, uh, you know, had it represented so accurately and thoroughly. It was just such a good representation of this crisis happening in our oceans, but she did it in a way uh, that was emotional and beautiful and approachable, you know, which is Mm. a very tricky thing to do with science Mm -hmm. communication to be able to present it in a way that people can relate to and not shut down with, because I think that's one issue we have with a lot of these big issues is people get scared. They don't want to hear it. It's too heavy. I went to this excellent lecture that was put on by the University of Iowa's Environmental Coalition. They do great work. They had tons of well-done presentations. But the one that stuck with me the most was, you know, the psychology of climate change conversations and essentially a a lot of it pertained to how, how do you approach this so that it brings other people to the table and the doom and gloom of it all makes people shut down the really science heavy end of it. Of course, you know, the, the whole picture, like you said earlier, it's based on facts, understanding facts. And that can turn people away too, because, you know, they can be, it can be difficult to grasp onto, Mm -hmm. onto some of this really complex information. So what I really love about, yeah, what JD has here is it's more approachable and it's coming at it from another angle that's less about the facts and more about the feeling, which I think you need 
equal parts of. Yeah. But people say all the time, like you're reading a textbook, you need to have storytelling to really fully understand, you know, statistics, facts. You, you, there needs to be a story behind it that that helps people, you know, latch onto those things. And that's where I think that that intersection of art and environment, like you said, is such an important aspect of this whole conversation and it sounds like it was done incredibly well with this installation yeah and i i think you know you said it as well there ellie in terms of you go to a lecture you read a report you know all those things are absolutely essential in this whole figuring out what the solutions are for climate i get that they are they all have their purpose but i think the beauty of environmental art is that it taps into not just your brain but it's also tapping into your heart and that's that's where you have this totally different uh, level of science communication that does become really successful for people yeah when you tap into that you know that's what motivates and and moves people into action yeah, I, I will definitely be following up on JD's work um, and seeing what else she's working on now. And because it, it just seems like everything she has done so far has been totally interesting, even as a person who is has little interest in science. You know, she has made it appealing to me. So, well, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that. Well, Jane, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking. Honestly, really appreciate all the work everyone does at the Recycling Center because although I don't think about it a lot, I know that it is really complicated and challenging problem solving that goes on there. So we appreciate all that you guys do. Well, thank you, Ellie. And I appreciate being on the show today. Our song of the week is Concrete Stilts by Dana T. It's the title track for a two-song release which dropped earlier this week. In a post, Dana says the songs are about touring in his 20s, then coming to Iowa City for school, and never leaving. The song features Michael Jarvie on Wurlitzer, Scott Ray on Lab Steel, Hannah Marks on bass, and Justin LaDuc on drums. Here it is, Concrete Stilts. Through windows of an old bookshop Wisdom glows like in danger
Prusil School of Music is dedicated to the development of ability in all children. They teach according to the philosophy of Shinichi Suzuki, who has proven that particular talents are not inborn and that all children can develop their abilities in music and other areas to a high level if they learn in the manner that they learned to speak their mother tongue. They offer excellence in early childhood education and music instruction for students of all ages in a caring, nurturing environment. The Prusil School believes music training is life training of equal importance to all children, regardless of economic status. It aims to keep tuition affordable and offers aid to those students in need of assistance who demonstrate a desire to learn. More information at Prusil, P-R-E-U-C-I-L dot org. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org slash friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, and by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peer United States Regional Arts Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.